0: Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Every week on Final Draft, I bring you a conversation with an Australian writer celebrating their recent work. Now, of course, no one in the literary community works in a vacuum, and our reading is constantly informed by what has come before. So today's episode is a preview of a new podcast that we're working on and will be coming soon for, from Final Draft that explores great Australian writing from across our history. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I explore books, writing, and literary culture, broadcasting Final Draft from the studios of 2SCR in Sydney. Great Conversations is a way to enlarge that discussion. It's a weekly podcast sharing the stories and issues that make our world tick, getting behind the scenes and talking to the creators of the books you love. So, the Australian Classics Book Club is going to be something a little bit different. It's a monthly exploration through Australia's writing heritage, Now, as a country, in a short history marked by invasion and dispossession, disunity and federation, Australia has amassed an array of voices evoking a myriad of stereotypes about the Australian way of life. But is there one Australia? Do we have a canon of literature? And if we do, who makes it up? In this special preview, we're getting into the most recent book club that went to air and discussing a living legend of Australian writing, Helen Garner, and her second book, Honour and other people's children. You're tuned in to 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Final Draft. Now, my name is Andrew Popel, and if you've been watching the calendar, you know that we are due for another Australian Classics book club. That is that time of the month when we explore, we delve deep, we go back in time, and discover an Australian classic that's lost, forgotten, or really just deserves a bit of attention. This month... I am joined in the book club by Jane Pearson. Jane is a senior editor at Text Publishing. They bring us the Text Classics series that supply our monthly need for an Australian Classics book club. And I'm also joined today by Michael Sala. He is the author of The Last Thread and The Restorer. You might remember him. He has, he, we have chatted before when The Restorer came out. And he wrote the foreword to the Text Classics edition of this month's book. I'm going to tell you the name. We are speaking about Helen Garner. Yes, Helen Garner and her second book, Honour, and other people's children, I want to say welcome to Jane and to Michael. How are you both?
1: Good, thank you. Very well, thanks, Andrew.
0: We're excited to talk about this. We were saying off air, so let's just admit to the listener, we're all very excited that it's Helen Garner.
1: Well, she is just so wonderful, isn't she? Um, So, Helen, i you know, I feel she almost needs no introduction, but maybe a little bit of reminder for people. She um, she was born in Geelong and uh, grew up there, moved to Melbourne to go to uni. Um, she was a teacher for a while, and then in 1977, uh, for the rest of the world, out of nowhere, I guess, came a book called Monkey Grip, um, which really put her on the map and I think shifted the way... Um, Shifted Australian literature. I mean, it was, I think it was really the first book that looked at a side of life that that we hadn't seen um, before in in um, in novels. And not only did she look at this sort of um, side of life—sex and drugs and um, uh, shared houses and love and all the all the kind of grittiness of life—but um, she went in, you know, right in there. She's um, We saw everything in in that book, Um, and it it was quite controversial, um, as anything new will be. Um, And that started, I guess, uh, quite a controversial. Um, career for Helen, as people will remember the first stone in 1995 that really um, uh, created quite a stir about a sexual harassment case at Ormond College at Melbourne Uni. Um, She went on to write other works of non-fiction, Joe Chinque's Consolation, uh, more recently This House of Grief about the um, tragedy of the Farquharson um, case, Um, and then... Uh, a collection of her shorter works called Everywhere I Look. Uh, So I guess these days she's pretty well um, known apart from Monkey Grip for her non-fiction but what people may be a little less aware of is uh, the wonderful fiction um, that she wrote, probably early, mostly earlier in her career um, uh, the children 's bark um, some time after that the uh, the spare room, and the one um, several short stories, and then of course um, the wonderful two novellas that were Talking about today, honouring other people's children.
0: I don't know if it's if it's a my age or, or other circumstances, but I um I kind of came to Helen Garner backwards. I remember reading the first stone when I mu- must have been late ish teens and. Joe Chin Consolation and then coming to the literature afterwards. And, and also just I've, another connection I, I always feel when I think of Helen Garner is the Geelong side mm-hmm. of things because half my family's from Geelong. I'm, I'm sort of born and, and bred Sydney, but feeling that Geelong connection, and I really like seeing parts of Geelong in her work. But, oh, I mean, Honour and Other People's Children is no exception. They're, these two novels, they constitute Helen Garner's second book, as you've just mentioned, Jane, and they follow up to Monkey Grip, and as I read them, I thought a pithy plot synopsis is really going to escape me here because there's always so much happening in any Helen Garner book. But as I prepared uh, I for our conversation, I also delved into the wonderful... A writing life, which is Helen Garner and her work by Bernadette Brennan. Brennan, it's also from text. Uh, so you know, get on to their stuff. It's a double. We're double dipping here with uh, with text.
1: Excellent. <laughs>
0: but in in it, Brennan describes Honor as a story about the need for the formal dissolution of one marriage to make way for another. And I thought that's that's got it. And Other People's Children similarly explores this breakdown of a relationship, and this time between friends and this coming to terms with a way of life that's changing underneath your feet. And that's part of what we're going to talk about today. Um, I thought just to start us off, uh, I was rereading Honour, and I I noticed at the beginning something that I not missed but hadn't thought as much about. Frank asks Jenny, so um, Frank and Jenny are the new relationship in Honour, and Frank asks Jenny, why are women so sad? Now, the question's an oversimplification, as men observing women often can be, but I wondered if perhaps in some way Ghana is actually spending the book, spending both of the novellas answering that question.
2: Yeah, that, that's, I think that's a really uh, interesting way of looking at it, because to, to my way of thinking, both of these novellas are really about the relationships between the, the two women uh, at the center of each of the novellas, a bit more than it is about the relationships between the women and the men
0: mm.
2: like that seems to be the real sort of thing where it 's almost like you 've got these women negotiating what it is to to be in in, in these new relationships at this point in time uh, and and what what fem- how how female friendship fits into feminism and the the kind of struggles that are happening in the 80s and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, that really sort of rings true for me.
1: I I think that, too, it's really summed up by um, the daughter in honour whose name's Flo, and when her her mum... Uh, is trying to sort of negotiate this new situation. She's been she's been separated from uh, Flo's dad Frank for quite some time, and yet now is facing the um, quite uh, what's for her quite devastating idea that they will actually be divorced. Um, but Flo says so gorgeously, "Why why can't we just all live together? Wouldn't that be nice?" And I think that kind of um, that kind of idea childlike ideal that, on one level, is just perfectly logical, and why couldn 't that work and yet, of course, it could never work it 's just not possible to even contemplate for an adult but there 's so much there 's so much sadness left in that we can 't live in a, in the ideal way that just should be logical and and possible uh, life 's just not like that life 's hard and complicated and messy and 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 the women in Helen Garner's work really feel that, so I I, I think that might be where all that all that sadness is. Mm.
0: That that necessity for Flo to kind of come to terms with the changing, uh, not just the relationship between her parents, but the changing way of living. That that broke me. That was just mm. probably the most heartbreaking process to watch. Because you, you said there, Jane, that in her mind it's. It's so simple, why can't it work? But of course it couldn't. And then but I I constantly tore myself with, but why couldn't it work? All we all everyone needs to do is just think about the world a little bit more like flow. And in the way Helen Garner is sort of exploring these relationships between the women, the women are also negotiating their place in a counterculture but a broader society. And it seems like they're they're always damned if they do, damned if they don't, because and uh, I'm I'm thinking now more of other people's children here, they're always butting up against a a fairly rigid idea of masculinity and masculine roles that even in the counterculture expects women to be a certain way. Oh,
1: definitely. I think you've gone right to the heart of it there, too. I think um, Helen Garner is really exploring this ideal that that these women are trying to... To live and believe in and want to believe in, but uh, I just faced at every turn <laughs> with with a complexity that just kind of doesn't allow it. The whole um, second story on uh, other people's children is. Um, about this house breaking down. We don't really even see it when it was, you know, we know that it was good for a while, but it just can't work. There's something really inevitable about it breaking down on all sorts of levels and there's terrible sadness in there for this ideal being kind of unattainable.
2: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because it, that seems to be stronger in other people's children, but some of the aspects of it, they're in both novellas, and one of the things that I really noticed was, for example, when Kathleen visits her sister and her brother-in-law is presented in this completely hapless way looking after the children. Uh, you know, he's, there's milk overflowing. It's like he's just looking after two kids and yet he seems completely, it's one of those classic scenes of, you know, the men all at sea sort of thing. And mm. so then she offers to fill in for her sister and he goes off to work. Um, Which And you you see that again and again in these novellas is that the men are kind of, they've got their really specific roles that they like Mm -hmm. to play, but they still want to be looked after rather than, you know, playing that sort of more domestic looking after other people role. But didn't you
1: love it when she offers... Um, to stay for a couple of days and help, and the minute
2: she says that, she feels this regret. <laughs> yeah, i mean, this is wishing she um, Yeah, I mean, I, I love Helen Garner's uh, fiction because she really—it's it, really—it—it it, it fascinates me the way that children are just trailing throughout her stories. They're, mm. they're always there and they're always having to be balanced, and and, and she seems to have this real love-hate relationship with the idea of being a mother and the idea of yeah. parenting.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's this great scene too when she is looking after these um, to her brother's two young kids and she's at the supermarket and she's forgotten something and she just leaves them in in the queue and that great balance between wanting you know being helpful and practical and so pragmatic and wonderful and yet also like the frustration of just trying to make everything happen and having to run back for the fruit and telling them to stay there and they, and they're really little kids you know it's um it's it's quite it's just an amazing look the it's amazing scene after amazing scene I think in this book everything rings so true to to life and you kind of know that this is all these little scenes and snippets and things that the kids said these are these are things Helen's seen and is is um has brought together in this wonderful story but I just know that every word that a kid says in that is something that a kid said that she's she's written down in those diaries.
2: Oh yeah, like when he, um, you know, when one of the boys, you know, steals the, the the jelly beans from the from the shop, or just picks them up and and then says, you know, about the other kid who's throwing a tantrum. Uh-huh. Do you want me to shove a jelly bean in him? <laughs> <laughs>
1: So great. There's just such beautiful moments, and you just know you feel like you've been there. It's like she's drawn on some universal experience. I think it's it's, um, and all of this is done with the most amazing economy. Like that scene is probably three lines, and yet it's it's so vivid and real and rich and complete. Um, uh, her her command of the language is just one of the most astounding um, things. She's a master.
0: I was struck actually by that as well, Jane. And you've, you've got me thinking about, and I'm sure I I don't think this was in your introduction, Michael. I think it was in Bernadette's uh, in Bernadette's book where she talks about the the aspect of autobiography and the way Monkey Grip especially was was brought together from Helen's diaries, and that raised criticism at mm. the time. And there's a comment, a quote from, from Helen, where she talks about the idea that as if there was no craft in then mm. actually turning it into the book as it is. And it's it's astounding how she is able to jump from scene to almost vignette to vignette in these people's lives and bring us into the scene so quickly, so wholly, with only small amounts of dialogue and small amounts of, or I'll say, perfectly realized observation, not just of the scene but all of the senses it's a very all of the books are very sensory Mm. in that way
2: yeah definitely they kind of really just move from sort of image to image don't they like you know and 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 that vignette sort of quality just does make you feel like you're just constantly being dropped into these kind of moments that sort of have this loneliness and this atmosphere but they're just so clean at the same time Mm. you know it's just so crisply sort of realized as you move from moment to moment
0: I love how visceral it is, and I just—I thought w- we can use language like like visceral. We can talk about the the sensory experience, but sometimes for the listener, it's it's best just to take them there. And this is really the first few lines of "Honor," where on summer nights they walked through the city gardens. The air stood thick in their nostrils. A damp warmth lay upon their shoulders, and then later, Jenny's head swam in the heat, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is. The experience that everyone can immediately recognise, even if we've never had the words for it, yeah. of a that, hot
1: summer night, that
0: sweltering anywhere yeah. in Australia.
1: Yeah, mm. yeah. Oh, you know, you could flick through the book, and we could spend the next half an hour just read, reading, <laughs> reading lines and
2: paragraphs. The book club it's is cancelled. Quotes from of-
0: Helen Carner.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really kind of cool too. Um, for me, the '80s like the late 70s early 80s that's when I was a young kid so there's the memories I have of it is quite visceral Mm. and vivid Uh, and I can really picture these kinds of both here and in monkey grip the the living rooms and the kitchens Mm. and and the interiors of houses and the streets that these characters move through and it's a very sort of pedestrian Uh, and I don't mean pedestrian in one sense I mean that everyone's walking around all the time or riding bikes you know we're not we're not often in cars. We're we're kind of inside houses, inside these really domestic sort of places. Yeah, and, and, there's real, I, and I real think that's, that's one of the really revolutionary about life, it too.
1: Even in its very ordinary moments, there's 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 stuff really happening. It feels, um, it it just feels very alive. Even if it's a conversation over a cup of tea somewhere, that's, um. I don't know, it's a life you want to step into and, and live for a bit and that's exactly what she allows you to do in um as you read these novels.
0: It really shows you the importance too of of life as it is lived. Uh, mm. as you said that, Jane, it struck me, yeah, we have very little sense of what each of the characters do outside of what we experience of them. I I'm mm. struggling to think each person's job as we understand it. I I remember that um I remember that Kath's sister is a nurse because there's mm-hmm. the fabulous scene in the hospital where she talks about refusing the epidural because yeah. like, oh no I know that bunny rabbit uh, that bunny rabbit line you're going to try and stick a needle in me yeah. uh, but beyond that it's it's very much life as it occurs and and I guess that's why also the children in in Honor so flow in Honor and the children in other people's children loom large as characters alongside of the adults because mm. the life as lived isn't contingent on them having employment and them being de- defined by their employment yeah. as, as we so often do. They are act- act- actors, they are agents in the narrative as much as the adults. Yeah,
1: it's all about their connections with each other, not about their standing in the world or, or anything like that, although I guess that, that does come into it, especially in the in the relationship with Ruth and and scotty and there's some really interesting things going on there scotty we do know scotty's a teacher but that's sort of quite background almost and ruth isn't working and there's some interesting um um interesting interactions between them about the sort of position in this house they have because one's bringing in money and one's well one's um getting some uh doll money but that that imbalance and and the tension that that's created is is really interesting and obviously too reflecting of a, a you know wider uh, wider world.
0: I guess there's also the tension there between the the influence that they have on the children. So in other people's children, it's it's Ruth's children, but Scotty has very mm. much this parental role. But the children gravitate variously towards Ruth and Scotty, and mm. it, because it's a communal house, it feels like they're not. They feel like they know they're not allowed to say, "Well, you aren't allowed to have more or less influence," but they mm-hmm. want to, and and that's part of the, the breakdown. Is Ruth wanting to sort of get away from that?
1: Yeah, but yeah, you know, I don't know if you noticed this, and I only did on a on a, a recent reread. You don't actually find out who's the the biological mum of these kids till a fair way into the story, and even then, it's just kind of subtly um, hinted at to begin with and this this um, uh, so whose kids you know the kids, and you know the the women there before you know whose kids they actually are, which mm. I think is really interesting, and that's probably how the the shared house worked in its ideal form that that there was that these kind of um, formalities were just not part of it, the ideal of the of the whole shared house was the way um. You know it might have been, and it it might have been for a short time before um, convention and formality and whatever took over, especially in the breakdown of the house. the kids have got to go somewhere and they're going to go uh, with their mother, despite this beautiful relationship that Scotty has with laurel that um, you know, I can barely bear to think about that <laughs> mm. how that all ends up
2: um, it really does catch up, doesn't it and this is one of the you- one of the things that strikes me about comparing these two novellas is the way that Garner kind of takes these characters and she's in one she gives one person the child and in the next she gives mm. the other person the child and so Kathleen it's her child going to into this other relationship but then we sort of experience more of the story through Scotty mm. uh, in the in the second novella but she's the one who doesn't have that biological link to mm. the child and uh to and, and really it's it 's the link to laurel that matters there, as you say yeah. uh and it it 's really you you see that that moment where the children kind of in a sense define how the relationship plays out with the adults because flows such an anchor in that first mm. novella, mm. and laurel just can 't be that anchor in the mm. second novella she 's because because she 's not connected to both of them in that biological sense at mm. this moment in time. Scotty just doesn't have the, doesn't have the claim.
1: No, and it's so oh, it's so sad because what, the the bond between Scotty and Laurel is so strong, and it 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 forms in the most sort of sad way because the young the younger boy hasn't been part of the household for some for his uh, the first few years of his life and his dad brings him back at some point and Laurel is suddenly sidelined because um, the little boy and his mum just instantly forge this really strong bond and he's young enough to still be cuddling in and Laurel's getting a bit older and is hanging around on the edges and then there's Scotty there to, to sort of scoop her up and love her and be everything she needs in a mother um and it's so it's just so beautiful and it's so natural and and it just sort of everything fits together so perfectly and then of course everything um you know starts to fall apart too and oh, I just it's so unfair for Scotty I just I just can't get
2: I Ruth, can't get past Laurel that. isn't it yeah I mean for both of them it that's kind of the tragic mm. that's the tragedy in that story
0: So Ruth's Ruth's son is young enough to still be cuddled, but he's also he's also old enough and cunning enough to be a bit of a wrecker, and we Ooh, we yeah. see him. <laughs> I I actually wrote in my notes um, that the men are hopelessly abominable, um, and it's not it's not entirely true. Frank Frank has his moments, but then they also have these moments where they do or say something that is just so self centered and uh, disregarding of of. The woman that they're speaking to and this this extends down to the youngest uh the youngest of the males in in this and i just i just really wondered about that like of course, you know you, you can't wish a character out of a book, but how much of that influence and and how much of that we're coming back to to the male influence in the books and and the way Garner tries to to grapple with that. Um, I was also struck like the scene the scene uh, with Dennis in Other People's Children, where Ruth discusses setting up a collective house. So the ha- the household is is breaking up; it's a, a fait accompli, and she wants to set up a, a house with Dennis, whom she's been seeing. And he complains, amongst many things, he complains of having to give up his politics. <laughs> um, and I really, I kind of thought, <laughs> I thought a little bit about the political turmoil Australia's been going through lately. Also, It also made me think of Annabelle Crabb's book, The Wife Drought, mm. and how so many of these men survive on the labour of the women around them from mm. from the oldest to the youngest and and ghana seems to be to be grappling as much as this and the impact that it's having on the relationships between females we see it with kath and jenny as well in those moments where they try to come together and part of the bridge or part of the sorry part of the the chasm between them that they're having trouble bridging is frank mm. through no maybe through no fault of his own but they can never be friends because one is always going to be the ex, and one is going to be the current
1: look um um helen and uh, and i were talking um a, a little while ago and um she i forget how it came up but she said you know back in the 70s we all thought right we've worked it all out now we know how how things should work we're all we are liberated we know all about it now all we have to do is spread the message and once everybody understands everything will just be great um, and of you know, and then we, we laughed a bit about how that just sort of never happened, although the, you know, the struggle continues. But that's, that's a big part of what, um, what's going on, I think, in these books. It's like this, this should all be working, but the men are still the men, and they're not quite catching up, and people are still kind of slipping into the roles that we're trying so hard to break down, and, um, and, you know, maybe, I don't want to say maybe that's never going to change, but you know there's that there's that sense of we're dealing with what we're dealing with, and people are messy and complicated, and it's not as simple as we know how it should be, so let's just do it that way
2: yeah look i mean it, for me it's kind of interesting i've got my my I've got my son in the background at the moment because he's sick he's he's six years old so he's he spends the day at home with me and i one of the reasons that I really connected to these these two novels, and I really kept on noticing the children is because that's very much what my life's been like. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and so I do think that that's changing. I, I mean, I, I feel almost like whenever I get this expression of the frustration of being a parent and wanting to escape your children and being mm. intimidated at times by how orderly the, the parental lives of other, you know, parents are, all of that sort of stuff, just kind of really resonates with me because mm. that's exactly how I kind of feel about it. And, you know, I can talk to teenagers really easily, but then the young kids, it's just constant sort of, it's just this exhausting, lonely kind of struggle. Yeah. So, But but the, the funny thing is, I know a lot of men my age now who kind of are taking that role that the, that the men in this generation that she describes in this book aren't taking they 're all a little bit childlike mm, in different yeah. ways uh, and and at times that's quite endearing with Frank um and then you, you've got Wally who's kind of abominable and he's he's kind of this hyper masculine little boy in this odd sort of way right and there's a line um about halfway through the novella that I really really like where it's um Scotty knew when Wally stuck out his tongue at her at the bottom of the stairs that Ruth must be back. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep, yep. Oh, it's so good. So, yeah. You,
0: you've really got me thinking about the the role of, or that the, maybe the legacy of the counterculture. I mean, if you read read a few Helen Garner, if you go on a Helen Garner binge, this idea of the counterculture of the seventies can be get, get very embedded in your head, and. It it makes so much sense. I think there's even one point, I think it's in Monkey Grip, where one character observes to the other that they really actually don't understand what's happening in the rest of the world or, or the rest of Melbourne because they are so enmeshed in their in their suburb and their counterculture. But if we look at legacies from there, we, you know, we, we have legacies of fashion and music that sort of cycle in and out of fashion. But this communal living, as it's described in Garner's books, seems to be something that yeah, as you say it's it, it might be an ideal that can never be realized even in shifting gender roles we're still looking at at binaries of of caregivers and workers we're not living in communal houses where um the raising mm-hmm. of children is taken taking a collective uh, on as a collective responsibility
1: it seems that you know People fall into roles no matter what goes on, and whether there's a the traditional roles or whether we mm. can sort of shift them for a better balance and whatever. But uh, you just reminded me of this great, uh, great bit, and I did make a note of it somewhere. Um, Scotty is is. Um, Moaning, I guess the fact that she's the one that everybody relies on and that she's the one who has to be to, has to cope, I think is the, the word she uses, yeah, and oh, that that means yeah. that, that that then drifts into some sort of authoritarian kind of role and then everyone expects her to be the one like that, so that's the sort of mm. self-fulfilling thing that's going on. Um, and then one of the other characters says, oh, you're reminding me of my father, and it's, <laughs> It's, uh, or how we saw our father, or something. It's sort of like it would, all of this work being done to try and, and get this, this ideal happening, and yet people will just naturally find their spot. This is who I am in this house, and, mm. and we kind of—I don't want to say revert, but become, become um, a collection of a, a collective of, of people fulfilling roles rather than this equal ideal of equality. Um, Andrew, please edit that bit out. That was
0: terrible. <laughs> that, that made a lot of sense to me. <laughs> um, I was wondering, I don't know, does that say something about me? Um, I was wondering if I could bring us full circle and and think about the relationships between the women that, that Helen Garner explores. Uh, and Michael, it was actually in your introduction that I was sort of first, this was first brought to my attention. At the very end of honour, there's the imagery of the women poised on the seesaw. They hung in the dark, airily balancing, motionless, and I wondered so much about that imagery. What could it? It could signal so many things. Um, you know, is it is it that there's an equilibrium that might break? Is it that we're inevitably going to suffer times when we're down and times when we're up? And then I thought about something I read in Bernadette Brennan's uh, book on Helen Garner the The novellas actually constituted originally a, a complete work that was split up, and i I started thinking, how were they ordered which mm. which one would have come first in the book, which one would have come second? Can I presume that just because of the way they're presented that's how it would have and then I thought perhaps that's the seesaw that's the seesaw of the effect. Maybe honor doesn't have to come first, and other people's children second the The coming together and breaking up is is the imagery that we should understand. Life, that got lofty. (laughs) Um.
2: Look, I mean, I. Who knows how it might have been structured? I, I, I'd be interested to, to, to talk to her about it, but possibly they might have just been interwoven, mm. Mm. so that it wasn't this first one story then the other. But we've got this these, and and then again, you know, I started to wondering because these characters they kind of echo one another. Mm. So were the characters themselves pulled apart in a sense mm. and reorganized on the page? Uh, one one of the interesting things I, I think in the first one in Honor is. It's the way that there's this kind of view of Jenny, where Kath, Kathleen's quite intimidated by her in some ways and sees similarities. And I noticed on this on another on, on, on a second reading of this book, the way that her her eyes get mentioned a couple couple of times as being slightly offset from one another. It's like this little mm-hmm. niggling, like you know mm-hmm. she's not perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I kind of I think the other side of of these relationships is of course the, the different rivalries and power struggles between women that, that are so, so in, integral to friendship uh you know um nothing stays in one. like the, the i love that sort of representation of the the seesaw because you do get that sense of there's a moment of equilibrium but you kind of have to work hard for it and as
1: you said it 's a moment it 's not right we 've got we 've got it worked out we 're all balanced now everything 's fine we 're here it 's just there for that moment, and then whatever else will happen will happen
0: it 's a beautifully captured moment it 's the sort of thing you would struggle to even capture on film as a if you were taking a photo, you would have to have pinpoint accuracy and that mm-hmm. That I think is the best analogy I can have for Ghana's for Ghana's imagery and her prose. She has pinpoint accuracy that even our most technological devices can struggle <laughs> to can struggle to mimic. Yes. You are tuned in to Two S E R, and this is the Australian Classics Book Club on Final Draft. We are having a wide-ranging discussion on Helen Garner's Honour and Other People's Children, two collected novellas. It is Helen Garner's second book. And for any fans or future fans of Helen Garner, you will understand how much we have necessarily had to to miss in our conversation there is always so much joining me in the book club today was Jane Pearson, Jane is a senior editor at Text Publishing and Michael Sala he's the author of The Last Thread and The Restorer he wrote the foreword to the Text Classics edition of Honour and Other People's Children Jane, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thanks Andrew Great
0: conversation That's it for the Great Conversations preview of the Australian Classics Book Club featuring Helen Garner's Honour and Other People's Children Stay tuned for the release of the podcast and listen in and follow us on social media for updates. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you're enjoying Great Conversations from Final Draft, hit subscribe in iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast and you'll discover more fantastic Australian writing delivered straight to your phone every week. If you're enjoying the show, could you please also rate us? It really helps other people discover not just the podcast, but the books that we're sharing. To keep up with the uh, the latest in books, writing literary culture, why not follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook? Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. We'll see you then.